The reading's taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, which can be found on page 5 in the Church Bibles. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the piece, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Shall I pray for us? Dear Lord, the creator of all things, we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage, um, we believe that you can speak to us through it, have done. And we pray that today you will do that for us, that we may learn, we pray. Amen. Well, you cannot miss that the passage you just had read to you is about marriage, talks about marriage. And as I talk about uh, talking on marriage, I thought um, to myself that it is, to quote Lord of the Rings, a bit tricksy. Because I could either, you know, by drawing experience, my own experience, imply that if you had a marriage like mine, you'd be all right, uh, which wouldn't be good. Or equally, by trying to avoid doing that, I could upset my wife by implying the exact opposite. So a bit tricksy. Well, the answer is to stick to what God teaches us from the passage, as always. As we do that, I think that you will see that the passage addresses a number of other subjects um, besides marriage. Equality between men and women, for example. Sexuality. But, of course, the original meaning and purpose are between uh, men and women in marriage. All of those subjects are relevant today because Christians are feeling uh, more and more under pressure from an increasingly secular society, in this country at least. John Stott said this in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today. The Christian mind is showing signs of capitulating to secularism. But more than that, in our Western society, whether you're Christian or not, people are becoming confused about what they're meant to be thinking about themselves and how they relate to each other. So it's well worth, isn't it, going back to the beginning, Genesis, the beginning, to look afresh at what God's original intention was for us. So I'll not be concentrating solely on marriage as we go through uh, the passage. 
So the first thing I want to clarify is that although this sounds, this section, it sounds a bit like a repeat or even alternative uh, creation story to the one that's summed up very well in chapter 1, verse 27. In fact, it's not a repeat or an alternative. Um, so let me read that verse 27 to you, uh, chapter 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's worth holding that in the back of your mind as we look through this. So why then would we need to go over the same ground again looking at that? Well, because this is the same event, but from a different perspective. And uh, actually, we do that all the time. We look at the same event from a different perspective. So if somebody said to you, uh, what was your holiday like? Well, you might explain uh, and start to um, talk about all the restaurants you went to, how the great food you had at this and that one, and how lovely it was, and how the breakfast, you know, the buffet breakfast was really lovely. And then you'd stop and think, well, hang on a minute, they're going to think I'm a complete glutton. Uh, I may need to express it from a different point of view about the things that I've seen. You maybe stress different things as you do that. And uh, so this passage, and interestingly, of course, the four Gospels do that with the life of Jesus, stress different points. So in chapter 1, we're given this vast panoramic view of the creation, uh, the scope of it. But in this account, we see creation from a much closer, more intimate, and more personal viewpoint. God has deliberately then given us two uh, accounts, because the second account, this one, clarifies and reveals more of his intention in making us men and women, to teach us something about ourselves. So, I'm going to... Uh, Break this down into three um, sections. On the back of your sheet, you'll find those three sections, if that helps. Uh, So the first is, it is not good for man to be alone, verses 18 to 20. Now, if you've been following uh, the creation story, and I hope you've been doing that, because we've been doing it in the morning services, we've been doing it in the house groups, we've been doing it in focus, and so on. So so I hope you've picked up that... uh, in verse 18, that this is the first time that God uses the negative. It is not good for man to be alone. Until this point, God has, in all creation, said that he sees it and this is good, or this is very good. So we may be tempted to think that um, at this point, God has just suddenly discovered that it's not good that this man be alone. He suddenly realized, oh yes, Oh yes, we need to um, actually rectify this, don't we? Well, that's clearly from the verse in chapter 1. It's always been his intention with mankind to create the male and female. What's happening now is we're getting to look at God's reasoning, to see God's reasoning in doing that. He has created us to have a relationship with him, but also with each other. So this truth then, it's not good to be alone, I believe actually applies to both sexes. So let me explain why I should think that. So, well first of all, say Adam, the name Adam also means the man, and the man can also mean all of mankind, both sexes. 
And you'll notice that in that passage I read, verse 27, it starts, God created man in his own image and then finishes, male and female, he created them. And in what we're looking at, God is about to figuratively take woman out of man. So this applies to both sexes. And I think that's a very important point. Because what it says is that women are no afterthought. It was always his intention. And it's not God that needs to register that mankind has this need, but it's mankind that needs to register it. Companionship is a primary human need. We're made to be in a relationship with each other, to share love and work in partnership with each other. Ultimately, that fulfilment is seen in marriage, as we shall see. But our interaction is not limited to that, is it? We're not made to be solitary. And so in that respect, along with others, respects, God has made us to be like him. He also is more than one in a loving relationship. So, let me just say, under this first uh, heading, um, talk about the naming of the animals. Because uh, this or these verses can feel, uh, they did to me, a bit like going off on a tangent. So, he gave the animals names. So how does that relate to man's need? Well, there's something special about naming things. It made me think of this... Um, this card I found in the New Testament, oh, sorry, in the National Trust in Winchester, uh, and it's sort of the, it's a humorous card. It's supposed to be an exam question, so I'll just show it to you because it's uh, easier that way. So, what the question is: Name these quadrilaterals. And so somebody's put Bill, Fred, Alf, and Jim. <clears throat> Do you like the the teachers? No. Um, but naming is, um, is very symbolic, isn't it, naming things? You feel the significance of that when someone actually remembers your name, don't you? So the man names the animals. And it says a lot about the nature of man and creation that man should want to name them. Naming does illustrate, obviously, that he has dominion over them. That's true, but also it reveals something about his personality. He is doing what people have done through the centuries, and probably lots of you have done. You name an animal, and uh, I don't know, Fido or something, um, because you want to take care of that uh, animal. It's it's sort of a symbol of your affection for the animal. But when you do that, you don't do it because you... Uh, want to show who's boss like I say it's because you want to take responsibility and uh, show it uh, some love so it reveals to the man that we are created to be social beings it stirs up in us a desire for companionship but it would also illustrate if you did that the gulf that there is between man and the animals does the animal know what name it is Does it even care what its name is? Now what man requires is one like him, yet different. So that brings me to my second point. 
and in the passage. The Lord God creates a woman, verses 21 to 23. And so I want to um, pick up three aspects of these verses. Um, First of all is that the woman is taken from the rib or created from the rib of the man. How are we to understand that? Secondly, it's said that she is to be a suitable helper. I think we need to unpick that a little. But thirdly, the woman is taken from the man. So is that significant? Is there a significance about that? So first of all, um, the rib. This account paints a very um, powerful picture, isn't it? That um, she's taken from the rib of man. It's obviously very symbolic, but to what extent is it literal? Well, it's hard to imagine that the God of all creation would need to resort to surgery, uh, given how he's created things up until now. But maybe it's not important in this context that we try to answer that. I'm not sure that we could if we wanted. What's more important is what it says to us about the relationship between male and female. So here's a quote from Peter Lombard, the Bishop of Paris in 1157. Eve was not taken from the feet of Adam to be his slave, nor from his head to be his lord, but from his side to be his partner. The passage is saying that man and women are from the same source. So the man himself says, here is now bone of my bone flesh of my flesh before this they were one but God chose to make them male male and female so that they can complement each other that's not on the you look lovely today dear type compliment but in the sense that they fit each other each has attributes inherent abilities and insights which the other does not have or at least not in the same way or to the same extent each has distinctive qualities so as in chapter 1 it shows that male and female are equal so in chapter 2 it shows that they are not the same they are complementary so both masculine and feminine Uh, femininity are therefore related to God's image and now we see that they are related to each other as well so that's the rib so how about the helper that um, God wants to make a suitable helper to say that women are created to be man's helper does sound somewhat patronising in the modern era doesn't it like an assistant, to help the one who is really going to do the important stuff. But the Hebrew word does not uh, imply inferiority in any sense. In fact, further on in the Bible, it describes God as Israel's helper. This is interesting. The meaning here is more than that of partner, with equal responsible. We have seen that male and female are equally made in the image of God and equally responsible for subduing and ruling the earth. But now we see they are a unit that is each helping the other. 
One commentator, which uh, I liked the way he phrased it, talked to women, says, she comes to the aid of man more like the cavalry than a servant. So, helper. So then, what has this woman been taken from man? Well, first of all, you need to, again, reiterate that there's nothing in the text here to say either sex is more like God than the other, or either more responsible for the earth than the other. There's no question of inferiority of one. But equally, there's no question here that they have the same identity. So having understood that, and without letting go of those truths, is there some significance in the woman coming from the man? I mean that in terms of men and women, how they relate to each other, uh, especially in marriage. Is that somewhat part of what it is to be complementary? Well, Paul in 1 Timothy refers to Adam being formed first, and he uses that uh, in his instructions to or on the behavior of men and women in worship. And then in Ephesians 5 he says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And you will notice in these verses, when it gets, verse 24, when speaking of marriage, the wording here puts a particular responsibility upon the man's actions in marriage. So this principle, so often called headship, has been discussed at length uh, in the church and it would take another sermon really to say much more about it. But I found this quote from John Stock very helpful. Three attempts to resolve the paradox between sexual equality and masculine headship have been made. Some affirm headship so strongly as to contradict equality or so it seems. Others deny headship because they see it as incompatible with equality. The third seeks to interpret headship and to affirm it in such a way as to harmonise with and not contradict equality. John Stott takes the third of those views. So I'm going to leave that there um, just for another time. But because there is enough general tension in a sense withholding to being equal and, um, and complementary but these mainly arise when you try to explain in what way we complement each other I don't know if you ever tried to do that feminists will probably and I think understandably get suspicious about any attempt to describe the differences between men and women and that is because men have used that often as an opportunity to define women in a way that suits them. Or we slip back into cultural stereotypes that have built up over the years rather than look at biblical definitions. Rob said a couple of weeks ago, being equal is not being the same. But despite all the talk in our society today about diversity being a good thing, I don't think that our society has at all grasped that equality is not being the same. And since the fall, I would suspect that humans individually are not looking for equality so much as superiority. 
We do not trust that one is not going to try and rule over the other. So, then, thirdly, the definition and reason for marriage, verses 24 to 25. I want you to notice that in verse 22, like the father in the marriage service, God leads the woman to the man. The man, in verse 23, on seeing the woman, breaks into poetry, as many have done ever since. For now he sees what God means by a suitable helper. Here is now a beautiful way for humankind to live and work together to fulfill the potential of creation, to love and serve one another. On my wedding day, which is a cold December day, uh, after getting out of the reception, my wife and I drove from Odium to Bournemouth, to the hotel, drove through the fog of this cold evening with a heating system blowing rice and confetti out at us as we drove along. Some helpful reveller had put it in there. Never did actually get the um, rice out of the heating system. As we arrived at this hotel, which is rather dark and uh, cold and empty, the the only residence that came anywhere near um, our age uh, actually was a Great Dane dog that used to lie across the, um, the hallway so you had to step over it to get to your room um, and in the room there was a gas fire which had two settings pilot light and two pilot lights but there was in the room a Gideon's Bible so uh, I flicked open the Gideon's Bible and just started to read that's a bad way to read the Bible as you probably know but God is gracious and he also has a sense of humour because the passage I read was on divorce (laughs) it's Mark chapter 10 but in it Jesus quotes in answer to the Pharisees question about could they just divorce he says this for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh So what was that saying to me and what is that saying to us today? Firstly, it's saying that marriage is not a human invention. As the marriage service says, it was instituted by God himself in the time of man's innocency. That's before the fall. To be the ultimate outworking of his creation of male and female. And in this verse it says that the man is to leave That's a public act, leave his father and mother. It is like the replacement of one human relationship with another. And in so doing, the man subordinates his interests to those of his wife. And then they are to be united, to cleave, as the old word would be. That's to commit exclusively man and woman, one to the other, forsaking all others. And they will become one flesh. That's permanent then, uniting. Speaking, obviously, of the sexual union, but more than that, in this context, and what we have just read in the passage, the man and the woman will once again become, as they were originally, one. And in that sense, 
um, it still further displays the image of God in us, who is three in one, living in perfect unity, different but equal. And in that unity, reflecting a relationship of love that unites the persons of the Trinity. So if you wanted, uh, this passage does summarise the purpose of marriage. But it's interesting. So one of the purposes of marriage is to have children, to bring up children. Um, But it's interesting that in this passage it doesn't mention that. We know that because it does in in chapter 1. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. But in this passage, it doesn't mention children. Could that be then that God knows that there would be a tendency to think then of women being created only for children? Obviously, that's not the case. For the other reason is for mutual society. That is that they would help and comfort one another, whether that's in prosperity or in adversity. And of course, that there would be reciprocal commitment that Self-giving love, a natural expression, being in the sexual union. Those three reasons. And then it's interesting that those three purposes become even more necessary as a result of the fall. That they actually would help and comfort one another in adversity. That they would avoid the temptations because they have this self-giving love to each other temptations that the world throws at them I was thinking the other day uh, what would I answer if someone asked me what makes a good marriage I actually don't know why I was thinking that really but I was before I knew I was going to be speaking and the thing that came to mind was self-sacrifice but that is very counter-cultural isn't it today the dominant worldview is or seems to be one of self-individualism. It's what, what I get from this. That does not fit well with complementarity or with marriage. To think of marriage in terms of self-fulfillment would be a mistake for male or female. But if you believe there is a particular role for men in marriage, then the New Testament makes it clear it is to follow Jesus' example of sacrificial leadership. So the Bible honours marriage still further, doesn't it, by saying that he, that's Jesus, and on the final day will come as the bridegroom to receive his bride, the church. So then finally, let's read verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Before the world, the the fall, there were no hidden secrets, no deceit, even of themselves. In God's true original pattern, there is perfect ease between them. The fruit of perfect love is that there was no greed, no distrust, no dishonour. But of course, that becomes the immediate casualty, doesn't it, of the fall. At the fall, the man and woman realised that they are naked and they cover up in more senses than one and they hide from God. Interestingly, 
their relationship was shattered not by disagreement but rather agreeing together against God only to prove how dependent on him they were so the real um, key to successful marriage is to have God at the centre of it so there we are sometimes seeing how things ought to be and once were can be both helpful and a little depressing although in the same way we do catch glimpses don't we of the image of God in people and we do in the amazing complementary differences that there are between male and female just as we see glimpses of the creative purposes that there are in the unity of marriage but let me leave you with this truth the equality that is created in God that we have just seen was perverted by the fall but is recovered by the redemption that is in Christ although we are different in Christ we are one and of equal worth so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus Amen